I grew up playing competitive sports. And like most of you, I was constantly reminded that my performance was dependent on my physical skills and abilities. It wasn't until I met my guest today where I truly understood how to maximize my performance potential by specifically focusing on my mental performance. I'm incredibly honored and excited to have my guest today as my very first guest, as he is someone who has impacted me in more ways than he could imagine. Michael D'Angelo is a mental performance coach. He graduated from the University of Ottawa where he received a master's degree in human kinetics and a specialization in sport and performance psychology. Being an athlete all of his life, Michael strives to bridge the gap between an individual's current performance and their performance potential. And he does so by developing and building mental skills. I'm incredibly excited to hear all that you have to share today, Michael. Welcome to the Honest Hour and let's get talking. I know a little bit about mental performance through what you've taught me, but could you explain what mental performance is, what you do, and why it's important? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think the, uh, you know, we worked together however many years ago now, probably three or so. Um, We've chatted a little bit at your your time during school and whatnot, but um, I kind of wear a, a number of different hats. We'll, we'll talk about the mental performance one first, and then I'll kind of go into what I do now. It's expanded a little bit, and it's it's gray. It's not so black and white as most things with mental health, so it's pretty fitting. So um, the industry of coaching or counseling mental performance really just comes down to um, performance psychology, the principles behind how people perform well, either in Uh, pressure-filled or stressful situations, how do they deal with those um, different types of situations, uh, whether they're an athlete or in an intense work environment. Um, And there's a lot of ties to mental health in that as well. So um, my clientele is mostly, was mostly, is mostly athletes um, from a wide range of ages and competitive levels. So I've worked with um, you know, recreational athletes as young as I think my youngest athlete was six. That one was tough. Yeah, um, that, was, that was hard to have a hard to keep a conversation going. The six-year-old boy who just yeah. met you for the first time, you know. Um, and then I I worked with a professional volleyball player who played. I think he played two years in uh, Dubai, and then he moved to Europe, and we worked together for almost two years. So it wow. was it was all over the place. Um, but that was kind of the, just the sport, almost the sports psychology, um, kind of area behind, uh, mental performance. It's, there's a little bit of, um, legal logistics that go into what is sports psychology. Can you be a sports psychologist in Canada, which isn't really that important for our conversation. Um, but the gist of that work was, you know, I would just chat with, athletes and people and kind of figure out like either they were struggling with something and couldn't figure out how to fix it or they just wanted to get better and wanted to find ways to on on how to do that because at the end of the day you know 
it's well known now how to get a physical advantage in your game. If you're a football player, it's pretty easy how to get stronger. You find yourself a strength and conditioning coach and you have an advantage. Um, you know, if you need to gain muscle or gain weight, or you need to shed fat, depending on what your sport is, it's easy to talk to a nutritionist and figure out how to do that. But the mental edge or that kind of like that, uh, mental aspect of competitiveness is, is still a little bit, um, maybe hidden. I don't know if hidden is the right word, but it's, it's tough, right? Some people just kind of, I feel like it, there's still like such a big stigma around it that it's well, all. Yeah, there's there's definitely a stigma around mental health in general, and and that's a that's kind of an issue with the industry itself. Is when I, you know, as soon as you say the word mental to someone, it automatically brings up those kind of thoughts and feelings that are related to the stigma of like, oh, I'm I don't, I'm not I'm not mental, or like yeah. my my uh, athletes aren't, aren't mental. They don't need this stuff, and it's like, well do they need to be confident? Do they need to know how to manage stress? Like, of course they do. That's their, that's their role. And you can't teach them that because you're just kind of hoping that, you know, your style meshes with them. So um, there, there's a lot of in intricacies and details with that, but um, yeah, that's kind of the, the gist of mental performance. And I mean, right now, like I said before, I wear a couple of hats. So I would say I do a bunch of different things, but uh, kind of the coolest thing that I'm doing right now is I'm running a, a remote coaching service where I think I've got about like 18, maybe almost 20 people on my roster now that I'm running this like um, triangle or like three, three pronged approach uh, of holistic performance, which includes strength and conditioning, nutrition, and then the mental aspect of things. So um, for some of those people that I'm working with, I'm really just working on the strength and conditioning side of things, they kind of feel like they have their, their mental side in check. They have the nutrition in check. Um, for others, it kind of starts with the strength and conditioning. And then we find out like, well, they don't even believe in themselves. And so it's really hard to get better at your sport or your performance. If every time you go and do something, you're doubting yourself. Right. So we end up working a little bit more on the mental aspect of things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's what I'm doing right now and, and I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I think the looking at the mental aspect of things is definitely something that's often forgotten, but is definitely the most important thing. Like you said, athletes will build their strength, they'll do all this training and whatever, and they can have like all the strength that they need, all the athletic abilities that they need. But if they don't have the mental capacity and the right mental mindset, then they're not going to be able to really get where they want to be and be happy with where they are at like a genuine level. And I feel like when we, so when we worked together, um, when I was playing tennis, I would, I, well, like growing up with anxiety, struggling with my anxiety, I kind of started, I started to realize that my anxiety was making its way into my tennis performance. So when we worked on tennis, it was, um, I got like a performance anxiety where I was scared every time I'd go for like for a match or something, I would kind of freak myself out and then not play as well or get in my head too much, start thinking about the score right away rather than actually thinking about my, what, like my skills or what I'm doing, freak myself out a lot with tennis. And I think like I had the skills and everything I needed there, but the one thing I was missing, like you said, was that confidence. And that came from, my mental clarity and like my mental capacity to understand this the sport and kind of how I'm feeling about things and you helped me to 
clear that up and think like, hey, Alessia, okay, like take a step back. It's not always about winning and losing. Like you need to like be in the right mindset, do mental practices before going on the court, whatever it may be. But did you find that in did you find that competitive sports impacted your mental health or if they did, how did it impact or if they didn't, it, how you think sports could impact mental health? Like, what are your thoughts on that? So are you kind of asking like my own experience with my competitive sport or just in general? Yeah, kind of start with your experience and then you can go into experiences with athletes you've worked with and kind of wherever it takes you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think depending on who's who's listening to this, I mean, probably the most popular um, competitive sport in, in Canada, for sure, Ontario is, for boys at least, is hockey. Um, and that's kind of what I grew up playing. I think I played hockey from when I was six up until I was 20. Um, I played a few years of AAA. I played a few years of junior. I was drafted to the OHL, so I'm pretty familiar with kind of like how that minor hockey system and, and major junior hockey system works in Ontario. And I'm sure it's different now. It was almost, I'm going to date myself here, but it was almost 10 years ago or so that I was kind of a part of that. Um, I'm getting there. I don't, I can hear my joints in the morning. I don't like it. Um, but, uh, I think sport has the potential competitive sport, especially, but sport has the potential to teach people so many valuable traits, especially if it's a team sport. Individual sports, I think, help to teach resiliency, for sure skills of like stress and time management, and you're the only one performing for yourself. Um, but in terms of working with others, like being a part of a team sport, just teaches you things that you might not learn in school, right? You might not learn with your group of friends if everyone just kind of gets along. Um, or if there's no like forced conflict, conflict resolution sort of thing in that team environment, you don't really have a choice. It's like, you don't have to like everybody, but you're all um, working towards a similar goal. Everyone is going to have a specific role. Um, you're going to learn what your role is and how to best do your role. If you want to accomplish certain things, blah, blah, blah. And you know, when you're nine, 10, 11, 12 years old, you don't think about those things, but they're kind of automatically happening in, in the background. Um, and they, in a way, set you up for how you're going to deal with those similar, similar situations later in life. And you're working on a group project at, at school or when you start to become part of a company that has a, a team, like, how do you work in that team? How do you define your role? How do you try to, you know, move upwards? So I think the benefits of sport in that way are, are huge because you almost have to, as a parent, try to find, like, how am I going to teach my kid this, right? Like, how am I going to teach them how to work in a group. I can't just like find five kids and be like, all right, you guys work together and uh, this is what you're going to do. And you guys figure out your roles and like kids don't do that. Right. They just kind of do whatever they feel like they want to do. More of like observing um, learners, which I feel like working with like a team, you're looking at what other kids are doing and then that's how you're kind of learning to work together. Yeah, absolutely. There's a ton of learning that happens in that team environment. And I think, you know, I think the question you asked was, do sports or did my competitive sport career impact my mental health? And I mean, I think with a broad stroke, I think anyone can kind of just say everything you do impacts your, your mental health, right? Yeah. Um, regardless of whether that's like friendships and social interactions or relationships or um, your, your workspace, your workplace, whether that's school or like an actual job and sport in general, all of those things are going to have some impact on, 
your well-being as an individual. And I would say, you know, if I if I look back on all of the teams that I played on, um, I mean, I, I was multi-sport athlete up until I was 15. I played competitive soccer as well. And I would say soccer actually had like consistent coaches, but hockey, I think my coach changed every single year except for one. So I probably had 15, 20 coaches. The ones I remember the, the most are the ones that I had the most negative experiences with. Um, and they were, they were pretty intense negative experiences, right? I mean, these are things, I'm sure everyone's kind of heard the stories that come out of the hockey world or the sport world from things like hazing, um, you know, things that happen at like initiation parties and, and that kind of stuff not totally different than what might happen at a first year university or something like that. I think the difference with um, competitive sport is, you know, to a certain extent, there's kids, they're teenagers, they're 15, 16, depending on what sport it is. If it's something like gymnastics, it could be a little bit younger where because the level of competition is so high, these kids are forced to grow up and be, almost handle things that are beyond their capacity in terms of maturity, too much pressure for a 13 or 14 year old to handle too much um, adult content, if you will put an asterisk on that um, for a 15 or 16 year old kid that's going to that hockey team that has 20 year olds on it, right? What a 20 year old is doing isn't what a 15 or 16 year old should be doing necessarily. Um, or what they're exposed to, right? Uh, you can look at things as basic as like the legal drinking age and that kind of stuff. Like obviously that becomes a, a big factor. So I think, you know, competitive sport provide this really, really awesome environment to, to grow and develop and, and nurture just kind of like good characteristics um, of human beings. But what it com comes down to is the individual environment that they end up being a part of, right? So I was on teams where, you know, I was maybe not the biggest subject of bullying, but like, you know, the team had two or three bullies and at some point in the season, I kind of got picked on um, like, uh, like other kids did or being exposed to the things that, you know, the 20 year olds were doing when I was 16 years old. Like I was a part of that stuff. And I think I feel grateful that I was able to kind of move past that without too many negative repercussions to my mental health, let's say. I mean, it's not like you kind of get like one experience and you're shunned forever, right? Something has to be pretty intense in order to, to do that. You don't really get, I mean, I'm sure you can speak to that, but it's not like you see something and it's like, oh, I have anxiety now. I've caught it. You know what I mean? Like there's all kinds of factors that go into that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I witnessed verbal abuse. I witnessed emotional abuse, all of those kinds of things. And those are <clears throat> essentially, it'll come down to contributing to levels of stress that force the brain into some kind of adaptation. And sometimes those adaptations are maladaptive and become mental illnesses, right? Or similar to similar symptoms to, to mental illnesses. Yeah. I think that that's something that we often, I mean, sports are such a big thing of our lives today. And you, we saw how big of it, how big sports are to us by losing them during COVID and like how sad people were and everything. And I think one thing that we don't often talk about is that um, the mental health aspect of it. And it's that kids are going into like these teams and kids learn, they're very like observant learners. So they're going to, they're going to follow the actions of like what that other kid in the dressing room is doing. So if they see 
that kid in the dressing room picking on the kid wearing glasses or like whatever it may be, they think that that's okay. And yeah, it becomes acceptable behavior to them for sure. Yeah. And exactly. Not only is it impacting the kid who's getting picked on's mental health, cause he'll have a little bit of like PTSD from that. He'll be insecure mm-hmm. about things. And like, I know from my personal experience, like in elementary school, getting picked on for like little things that that stuck with me. And when you're young, you kind of, those things you may not, you may not digest them in the moment, but as they come up over time, you start to realize that that insecurity may have been a result of something that had happened when you were young. So like not only are this kid in the locker room gonna have a little bit of mental damage from getting picked on nonstop, the kids who are watching him get picked on think that that's totally okay and that that's cool. So then they're gonna go and do it to the next kid they see wearing glasses. So I feel like as, as much as sports are so important to us and they are so big on building the skills that kids need and completely like absolutely a necessity, I think coaches and um, organizers and whatever it may be need to make sure that it's like a, it's a genuinely healthy environment because that's what nurturing, that's what nurtures the future. That's what nurtures future athletes, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, I think, yeah, go ahead. No, no, you, you go. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I think the, I guess the question is like, who, who is supposed to be responsible Mm -hmm. for ensuring that these environments are positive and developmental and, and safe for these kids to grow up in. Right. Because, you know, if I don't have any kids yet, but if I put myself in the position of having a kid that was 16 and I knew what environment they would be going into, there's absolutely no way I would put them there. There's yeah. no way. Like there's so much more bad that could come out of, in my opinion, playing junior hockey in Ontario than there is good. Unless you have, unless you know you're going to be there for a very specific period of time because you're going to get to the next level, you're that good, which is a pretty small percentage of people. There's a lot of damage to be done. Um, and there's a lot of, onus that has to go on someone like who's responsible for the way these people and these kids are behaving right it can't be one person it can't be one group of people everyone's coming from a different family a different background and that kind of stuff but just i think what's what's become acceptable what's an acceptable level of complacency from the coaches to the players to just seeing things and being like oh i guess that's okay like nothing's happened is just it's way too high the threshold for for what's acceptable is is way too high at this point um and at the end of the day i mean just to kind of tie in some some psychological principles i think how we manage some of those stress stresses or stressful events comes down to is it comes down to how we attribute them to their cause so just taking your example of bullying the kid with glasses right if that kid with the glasses has a certain level of resiliency he'll be able to recognize that the bullying is a reflection of the bully feeling insecure rather than attributing attributing that bullying to some flaw in his actual character yeah right he's obviously not going to do that consciously at that age but it's you know sticks and stones right it's kind of like that is a psychological tactic to try and remember that words don't actually have an impact on your character, right? But at the same time, 
who is telling the kid how to do that, right? If organically, they're just like, well, I know that what this person's saying is, is not actually going to hurt me, so it's fine. Great. They can probably move on from that experience without much trauma, we'll call it. But if they can't, if they're, if they're the, whatever, their genetic makeup, their predisposition is to internalize a lot of the things that are being said about them, they're going to come away with some damage from that, especially if it, if it happens more than once, right? So I think that's you know, just something that's interesting to interesting and important to think about in terms of if, you know, people find themselves or were in those situations of being on those teams, or if they get in a position of like coaching athletes or being in charge of things or seeing things, it's like, there's, there's a lot of work to be done to make that better. Yeah. And I think a lot of that, like you had said, um, goes back to like the nature versus nurture debate. And it's such like a debate that you can like relate to a lot of things, but it comes with, does this kid so like you said the kid wouldn't internalize what the bully is saying unless if they knew if they knew okay that he's those are his own insecurities projecting his own insecurities is it that he he was like told in the house like in his house like hey by the way like his parents like really like educated on mental health and was like by the way if anybody ever did this to you don't take it personal whatever or was he like predisposed to like having like a genetic makeup, which just doesn't internalize things. As yeah, sure. absolutely. It's, there's so many factors that go into how those attributions are made. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, this is, I'm sure this is jumping the gun a little bit on one of your questions, but in terms of like, okay, well, how do we get better if we are someone who is predisposed to internalizing negative negative things that are said to us about our character how do we change that right because that's at the end of the day that's the thing right we can't just accept our circumstances and be like well i'm anxious my life sucks right like your life sucks as much as you kind of accept that your life sucks so i think there's lots to be done and it doesn't mean that it'll be the same level of difficulty for everyone um but you know knowledge and awareness are extremely powerful when it when it comes to, to this kind of stuff yeah and um yeah i think a lot of it comes down to what we are telling people and what you're like mm -hmm. educating kids on and especially in like the younger generation i know for me when i started experiencing anxiety for the first time i was like first thought that came to my head i was like what in the world is happening mm -hmm. to me am i going to die and is this gonna last forever because I, I i can't i can't deal with this and i think a big part of helping kids one understand mental health how to better their mental health take care of others mental health even understand like bullying be aware of signs of like bullying or early onset like anxiety or whatever it may be i think it all comes down to one how our education system addresses mental health two how parents teachers everything addressing how your peers talk about it so i think like as we start breaking the stigma down more talking more about it educating kids from a very young age and we could kind of put that um put the idea in their head that when they hear a bully making fun of them they could just they know they were taught by their parents or their teachers whatever it may be like oh he's just um projecting his insecurities and then that way it doesn't have as long-term effects on their mental health Absolutely. or any effect right yeah. i mean that's 
that's when you're you're getting into the idea of of resiliency and character i mean i don't think you could look at any extremely successful person and look at the history of the decisions that they've made and without a shadow of a doubt unless they have some kind of genetic anomaly they will have been shitting their pants making those decisions because they're like what if i'm wrong what if i don't know what i'm doing what if what if you know this person is knows better than i do all of those doubts right all of those those kind of like deep-seated what if i'm not good enough what if i don't what if i don't actually know it's it's that loss of confidence when it comes to uncertain situations no one is exempt from those right everyone has to experience those but it's kind of how we how we interpret that information and ultimately make whatever decision we do and then reflect on that that's going to decide how we kind of react to to situations like that going forward yeah and that do or die mindset kind of it's win or the world is over kind of thing you obviously see that a lot in athletes and you see that mindset dealing with like um performance anxiety could you talk about um some of the biggest mental health risks or problems you see in your line of work and then some of the positives as well yeah absolutely so i mean i think there's there's a couple of trends that i've kind of noticed over the years and i would say these are a little bit more anecdotal than they are scientific or or necessarily backed up by research at least in the language that i'm going to use um but I'll, I'll just kind of throw a couple of things out there so i think the first one we chatted a little bit about this just just kind of before we hopped on um the podcast but relates to uh, identity so i mean i'm sure everyone can kind of remember when they were in school and maybe they were like i don't know think like grade two three four and you kind of had to like write an acrostic poem about yourself you know you put your name yeah. like straight down you know what i'm talking about right you put your name straight down and you're like what are what are some words that you like or what are some things you like or what are you know how do how would you describe yourself so it's like well my name's fred and i'm funny and i like to i like to eat bread and whatever right you put those things down and they are for the kids it's you know it's you hear this a lot but kids are painfully honest right they almost like they have a really hard time lying they haven't they haven't developed the ability to manipulate and deceive people. So those acrostic poems are really genuine representations of who those kids, those individuals, those people are. And what you start to see as you get older, and there's, there's a good reason for this. It's a psychological phenomenon, but is athletes especially will start to almost reconstruct maybe not their personality, but their identity to be someone who they think they should be. So I want to be a professional athlete. What does the professional athlete do? They do this, 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 this. And it's like, well, even if I don't like to eat broccoli and chicken before games, that's what my favorite player does. Maybe that's what I'll do, right? That's not a characteristic change, but just an example of like kind of taking on some kind of change that's unnatural, right? Um, and I think you see that a lot. And I've seen that a lot in kids specifically, well, maybe not specifically boys, but kind of in that like pre-teen, early adolescent years where when you ask them questions, if you are in some kind of authority position or in some position of power over them, they just kind of answer how they think you want them to answer yeah. instead of just putting things forward. 
And from that, I think you can start to see not a deconstruction, or, but perhaps a less conscious awareness of who they are, right? As, as a person, they are literally cognitively distancing themselves from their honest opinion, their honest views, their honest beliefs, in the hopes that either they don't get in trouble or they get the thing that they're trying to get. Yeah. So it's like, well, you know, it's no different than, you know, you apply for a job and you have no experience and, you know, the hiring manager is like, well, why should, why should I hire you? And in your head, you're like, you shouldn't hire me. <laughs> I don't have any experience. I don't know anything, but I want this job. So I'm going to lie to you. Right. It's just that little bit of cognitive dissonance. I'm like, okay, well, let me come up with some kind of reason. So there's, again, there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes it's, it's, it's valuable and important to consider other people's opinions when their decision is kind of what determines whether you get that job or whether you get the spot on that team or how much ice time you get or whatever. I think the issue comes when people stop reflecting on who they are as a person and just kind of go through the motions. Yeah. And to me, that's a, that's a cultural thing. That's a, sure. I, can't, I can't speak to too many other parts of the world, but things move really fast in North America, yeah. right? Business, the economy, things are built off of speed and efficiency and productivity and get more done faster in less time. Do it, do it now, do it quickly, get it done. And what that does is it really prevents us from thinking, like literally just thinking with space to think mm -hmm. call it call it mindfulness call it meditation call it taking a break it doesn't really matter but if we can't reflect and take lessons from that reflection we lose the ability to see if what we're doing aligns with what we want to do yeah and a lot of the times what i've seen and what you'll see is these athletes will get so distant from what they wanted or so distant from who they thought they were or who they wanted to be that they can't even recognize themselves anymore. And so the big question that kind of comes through, and this is a really good test of like, does someone know who they are? Quote unquote, um, is you ask them, okay, who, who are you? And if they respond with something that they do, then they probably don't know who they are. Right? They probably have some skewed perception of their identity. What's that? A student. I... Yeah, right, exactly. So I'm like, Alessia, who are you? And you're like, oh, well, I'm a Western student. Um, I'm trying to go into genetic counseling and I used to play tennis. And it's like, no, no, no. Those are things that you did or you, you are doing. They are not part of, I can take school away from you. I mean, if 2020 has shown anything, it's that. All of those things that are outside of control can be taken away from us, right? Sport has been taken away from you. So if I was a hockey player and my season is gone, who am I? And then if they sit there and they're like, uh, I don't know, they genuinely are unable to connect to their core, their purpose, their, their soul, their reasoning, their whatever you want to call it, right? And I think that's where you start to really run into issues, especially later in life. And this, this becomes more pronounced the higher you go, I think, especially with professional athletes, because all of a sudden they have access to any coping mechanism they want when they made millions of dollars for a number of years, right? Drugs, alcohol, parties, it's all 
it's all basically, it's not free, but it's like no expense matters. Right. Um, so I think the biggest issue for sure is that loss of identity, that loss of recognition that no matter what happens in the sport, no matter how far they get, no matter how good they are or how bad they are, they are still a person at the end of the day. And they might still be a brother or a sister or a cousin and uh, an owner of a pet. Like those are things that you can't, I mean, let's not get too dark and talk like you can take that away, but like those roles will always exist, right? Um, and they like to be satirical. So they're very sarcastic. That's their kind of humor. Amazing. You can't take that away from someone. That's part of their identity. And when that identity is very grounded and very rooted, you often see high levels of consistency in terms of like performance without the need for like multiple negative coping mechanisms, yeah. substance abuse and just like unnecessary distractions and that kind of stuff. So that's, that's probably the, the biggest, I guess, negative thing or like, issue that I see with athletes that, that come to me, it's not always that common, but it's probably the most difficult one for sure. And it's more difficult with age, obviously. Yeah. And I think I agree with everything you just said. And I think a lot of that, um, like you had also said, comes from what society has set up for us. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, okay, I'm going to, um, like with girls, for example. So like take it out of sports with girls, we see models on Instagram and we're like, okay, if I eat like that model, I work out like that model, I do all those things like that model, I'm going to be that model. So you mm -hmm. start bodying that model, but when you do that, you're losing who you are. And in sports, like somebody be like, I want to be, I want to be as good as Sidney Crosby. So you start doing everything Sidney Crosby does to be him, but you're trying to be, you'll never be able to be Sidney Crosby. You'll only be able to be yourself, but trying to be Sidney Crosby, you completely forgot who yourself was, who, who you were as a person. And I, and I think that's the biggest thing we forget these days and even for me you could ask me hey alessia who are you and i could say like it would take me a bit to think about who really totally. it doesn't and i feel like like you said life is moving so ridiculously fast that we never take the time to like even 10 minutes a day just sit back and be like take a piece of paper and write down okay five ways i define i describe myself and then that in that way, you're not only reminding yourself who you are, you're reinstating your identity and you're saying like, this, this is who I am. I am my own person. It doesn't say on that list of like who you are. Okay. I'm Jennifer Aniston. Like that's, <laughs> much as I wish I could put a bunch of like names and then that's way and that that's not who you are. And I think that's something we should all work on more is taking more time in a day to just ask ourselves, like, who, who are you? Right? Yeah. I, mean, I think, I think it comes back to reflection, right? It, it literally just comes back to giving ourselves an opportunity to think without distraction. And that's really hard. I don't know. I mean, this is getting off topic, but have you seen that social dilemma? Yeah. Right. So just the way that social media was designed was to more or less, 
hack into our psychology to make us addicted, right? It's the same way salt, sugar, and fat processed foods are developed to make us addicted or feel like we're not eating as much as we are so that we eat more and spend more money, right? Like the science behind it is good, but the repercussion or the consequences of it for us are bad. So more addiction to time spent on the internet or social or buying stuff or whatever it is means less time spent on everything else, right? Like that's, that's one of the really interesting things to think about with, with time is it's, it's extremely finite, right? In a day we, we are whatever diurnal animals or whatever you want to call us. We are awake for a certain period of time and we are asleep for a certain period of time. Um, and we can't really change that for the most part. We can't just be like, oh, I'm just going to sleep two hours today and I'll be fine. Right. I'm sure every student has done that and, <laughs> and felt the repercussions and every year they go forward, they feel more repercussions. But, um, I think it's something that's really important is like, if you know that if you don't just use meditation, for example, if you know that if you don't meditate 10 minutes a day, you're going to be stressed out after three days, meditate 10 minutes a day, yeah. every day, just, just do it. Right. Like it's one of those things that has to be worked into your day. It's no different than like, Hey, if I don't grocery shop for two weeks, I'm not going to have any food and now I'm not going to be able to eat. Yeah. Are you going to stop eating? Like, you can't, you can't do that, right? Your, your brain and body are built to survive as, as, as long as, as long as possible. So you will find a way to go eat. And the same way is to find a way away from stress. And I think the focus is just trying to find a positive way to move away from stress rather than picking up a, you know, like a negative habit or some kind of coping me mechanism. So I think another really positive exercise, I've used this one a lot recently with people uh, I used to use this one myself actually too. Um, I, I call it 10 wise deep. And so basically it's, it's not directly related to identity, but it kind of comes back to it. So a lot of the times when, when I ask people why they're doing something like, why is this race so important to you? Or why is this degree so important to you? Why do you want to be a genetic counselor? If we're going to take your, your kind of specific situation and your first answer might be like, Oh, that's cool okay that's not that's not the reason you're spending all this money and all this time and all these resources on it it can't be that's not a good enough reason so why is it cool let's go deeper right and i think once you start to get to like the five six seventh why you get to the seventh reason or the seventh purpose maybe maybe it takes 10 maybe it takes 15 we start to get to really the fundamental drive or kind of that like fire as to why we're doing something and that reason is connected to our identity that somewhere in there it will be connected to why we're doing what we want to do so why do i do what i want to do i don't enjoy all aspects of it um i don't love the social i'm naturally very um introverted like all of those things so talking with people a lot used to be really hard for me but at my core, as part of my identity, I really, really like helping people. And this is one way that I can help people is to talk with them and connect with them and stuff. So it's like, as soon as I recognize that, the two, the two just go together and it, and it gives me a sense of purpose, even, on, even when I have shitty days, right? Not every day is going to be good for, for a multitude of reasons. But if I can come back to the fact that like, hey, I'm still moving in this direction for this reason and that still resonates with who I am as a person, I'm going to be fine. I'm not going to experience a ton of stress from that. But if I 
felt a difference if I was like, you know what, I don't actually like helping people anymore, then I would stop enjoying helping people and it would feel stressful to approach those situations, right? And I think that exercise can bring us closer to that understanding, but the average person is so far from even knowing who they are that they can't answer that why question, right? I think that's um, why we are the way we are is because we live so passively rather than actively. We never, we never live in the moment. And, and I, I, I see that and I say this, like I'm so old and wise and I really do. I really do see it. And, and it's terrifying. I see like, obviously you see my cousins too, but all like my younger cousins and they're on their phone, they're texting, they're on TikTok and they're so young. And I'm like, you are not living in life. You are so young. And you, these are your biggest years to one, be shaping your brain, be building skills. You should be getting outside, playing sports, doing things to, to grow your brain. And right now, they're, these younger generations, their brains are just being turned to mush because we're so passively living. We're not living in the moment anymore. So detrimental to our future. And it terrifies me that the young, to see where the younger generations are going to go now with regards to their mental health because they grew up on technology passively. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think to tie it back into almost everything that we've talked about and back from the social dilemma too, they pull out some stats in there about um, anxiety and depressive related diagnoses, specifically in young girls. I think they do like a 13, 14, and then a 15, 16 category. And it, it basically like explodes, like exponentially skyrockets um, as soon as Facebook and, and Instagram start to become viral and widely accepted. And so what that, like, forget, forget less time outside. That's a, that's a negative health consequence, but like you're saying, it's shaping the brains because kids are no longer kids who are addicted to technology at that age are no longer living for themselves. They're literally living to try and please other people, right? Like what else is the purpose of TikTok? Yeah, that's the thing. Like TikTok, it's, I, I, don't get me wrong. I am a big TikTok fan. I, I make, <laughs> I make TikToks, but that's because they're just like fun to make. They take my mind off things, whatever it may be. But I see kids who are so young on TikTok is what is happening to like whoever created TikTok is cruel because not only did they make like another addiction for kids to like be addicted to, but they just that's such unrealistic expectations for these kids that like now every kid wants to be Charlie D'Amelio and like these famous. Sure. And it's yeah. Crazy. yeah. Well, and, and I think it just sets, it, you know, it sets that precedent of like, I want to be this person. And then there is going to be some come down of like, Hey, you can't, you can't do this. Yeah. Right? And again, it's that dissociation from like, well, why not? Like I, I, I'm cool. Like I do these things and all of a sudden their, their identity or who they thought they were starts to get challenged a little bit. And then if they don't have anything to fall back on because they've been spending all their time trying to please other people, then that's when you can kind of run into, uh, run into issues. Yeah. And they start building that mindset. And even in sports, you can see it as well. And it's like the, the winner, the, 
all or nothing kind of mindset. Like, oh, this person gets so much attention and everyone likes them because they're really good at TikTok. So now every kid who used to be want to be a doctor or a veterinarian or whatever it may be, now they all want to be TikTokers because that's what people like. And that's sure. what people, that's what, that's what they think they need to feel good about themselves. And yeah, it's the immediate reward, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Sure. Any, do you have last question? Do you have any advice, tips for people who may experience any mental health, performance anxiety? Any, any last? I'll, I'll throw, I'll throw a few wise words out there. Yeah, um, I think from, from that more holistic perspective, I think there are a lot of things. Let me back up. It's really hard to change your brain. Yeah. It's very possible, but it's hard because it's not hardwired, right? Some, some things are hardwired, like our breathing and stuff, but the way that we think is plastic. It can, it's, it's changeable, but it's not as easy as changing your diet, right? So if you drink three cans of Coke a day and, you know, pack back, a bag of chips. If you stop doing that, you'll be healthier. This not hard, right? Have diet soda or there's have a LaCroix, whatever you want. Just stop having 90 grams of sugar in carbonated drinks every day. That's not hard. Um, but when it comes to this, you know, how do I change my psychology? We just don't have enough information yet of, Oh, do this. It's not there. So the best pieces of advice I can give on doing that is one, spend less time on your phone, yeah. which I would probably say to myself every day. That is something that's consistent across every industry. Mm -hmm. People who spend less time on their phone are going to be better at weight loss people or, or like building muscle people who spend less time on their phone typically then the average person who doesn't will have more success getting more fit or following a fitness program people who spend less time on their students who spend less time on their phone will probably have better grades in general right um so that's it's it's not the phone that's necessarily evil it's our inability to resist the temptation that's built into the addictive power of the apps and that that social network of like how many likes did I get? Who's commenting? Oh, my phone's buzzing. It's important, right? And that, that kind of goes into some other psychological principles of like urgency versus importance and that kind of stuff. But I think the takeaway is like, just less. Doesn't have, it doesn't mean throw your phone in the garbage, right? But it's like, if you can, if you can walk in your house or your apartment, put your phone on the table and go in your room for 10 minutes, you will be amazed at what happens to your brain. It's like that fog will slowly start to clear. The second thing that I would say, and this is something that I share with pretty much everyone um, that I do that wants to improve in some kind of way, whether it's fitness, nutrition, or mindset, is the way you do anything is the way you'll do everything, right? Like and if you, if you kind of break that down, it's like, if you have sloppy sleeping habits, so you're like, well, I really want to get eight hours of sleep, but it's 12 and there's this really good show on and I just, oh, it's so good. I'm going to watch it. And you get six hours one night and you get seven the next and then you get five the next because you're late on your assignment or whatever it is. That 
inconsistency or inability to kind of follow your goal through with getting eight hours is going to be the way that you approach other things as well. It's going to start to slip in other er into other areas of your life. So, you know, if you desire, and, and this becomes more important at a level of high performance, but if you want to be a high performer, you have to take yourself that seriously kind of in all levels. Right. And I think I'll use sport just because it's what I'm the most familiar with. And I think what, <clears throat> what's pretty easy to relate to, you don't have pro athletes. Usually you don't have pro athletes that sleep three hours a night and have a shit diet. Mm -hmm. It doesn't usually exist anymore. Yeah. Um, there are exceptions. There are, you know, overly talented or wildly talented individuals, but in general, if you want to get better at something, um, you kind of have to approach everything that's involved in it in the same way. So how you do anything is how you do everything. And then the last thing that I would say, say, slay, the last thing I would say is I think sleep is one of the most underrated factors of performance that are out there. And it's so simple, but I remember I've had conversations. Was that? You should tell my mom that she oh, always goodness. early. <laughs> I, I've had the, I've had this conversation with a lot of people. And in the beginning I was like, yeah, yeah, sleep is important. And I think I used to get like seven to seven and a half hours pretty consistently. And I was like, it's close to eight. Um, and sleep duration is important. Sleep quality is also sleep quality is almost more important than sleep duration, but the effects that you see on the brain with insufficient sleep and insufficient recovery are incredible mm -hmm. to the yeah. point where, you know, there is suboptimal performance 90% of the time because people are under recovered mm -hmm. and that's all they know. Right. And so I think our, our brains are really, really good at, weeding out consistent and unnecessary information it's how we drive right we don't pay attention to absolutely everything you see on the road you know that if the light is green it's fine you can go you don't have to check in with your brain and be like does green mean go what does green mean again like you just you yeah. just do it right and so if all of a sudden we start making this normalize this feeling of waking up groggy and feeling tired and we're like, it's fine. I, I can, I can do work. Or like, I, I aced that test when I slept five hours. Maybe I should sleep five hours more. I'm like, stop kidding yourself. You cannot sleep less than seven. I almost want to say seven and a half to nine hours a night and perform optimally. Mm -hmm. It's not a thing. You are not the exception. There are exceptions, but it's a really, 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 really good chance. That it's not you. Right. And so it's like, same kind of thing as that meditation. Like you have to set that time aside to get the sleep in if you want to perform optimally. And that doesn't even mean sports. That doesn't even mean um, tests. That just means like the way that you think. If you wanna think as good as you can possibly think, if you want your hormones to be normal, all of those kinds of things, you have to sleep consistently. Mm -hmm. It's such a simple thing, but um, those are my three. We'll go with those as the big three. I could I could give advice all day, but let's, let's shut me up. <laughs> I like those three. Those are definitely three that I, I think you've definitely mentioned them to me multiple times when I come crying to you about my <laughs> Um Yeah, I, I like I like that a lot. And I think kind of the big takeaways from our discussion today would one be to disconnect, kind of take some time to yourself, live in the moment, be active rather than passive, just be present 
in, in life. And that'll definitely help you to another important thing. Remember your identity, remember who you are, remember that you are, you are your own person rather than who you want other people to see you as, or what you want to be. You are, you are you and nobody can else be you as cheesy as it sounds. That was pretty, that was 10 out of 10 cheese. Yeah. yeah thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it wasn't in my script. So. That, was blood. that was good. And then also how um, everything you do, or how did, how did you say, I can't say it properly, how anything- the way, you, the way you do anything. The way you do anything is the way you do everything. Probably the way you do everything. Yeah. But I think those are definitely the biggest, I mean, that's what I'd say are the biggest takeaways, be mm-hmm. present. Um, and then also I think it's really important to remind people that we should take at least 10 minutes a day to kind of think about who we are and ask ourselves, even if it's 10 minutes before bed, 10 minutes when you wake up in the morning, just kind of think like, who am I? And think of maybe like three ways to describe yourself that aren't like, oh, I'm a, I'm a hockey player. Yeah. Even just like, even just to sum that one up too, without getting too, um, symbolic or whatever it might be it's just like don't be afraid to explore your own mind right like don't be afraid to think without other people's opinions and there are a lot of opinions on your phone i think that's the way to think about it right like the reason to disconnect is because we have to give our brain a chance to be with itself and just see like hey what what do i actually think about this is it someone else's opinion or is it mine so lots of stuff in there Hopefully, uh, if it helps one person, we did something good, right? Yeah, and even if it doesn't, even if it doesn't help you, I hope that you learned a lot from this. Um, I'm gonna disconnect from you now. Uh, no. <laughs> um, but thank you so much, Michael, for taking the time to come and talk and be my very first guest. I'm really excited and. You've taught me so much um, about my anxiety and my mental performance, my mental health, and kind of being more optimistic and positive about um, daily struggles, getting through life. And I hope that everything, I know how much it's helped me, and I hope that people who are listening will gain the same that I have from you. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm I'm the honorary first guest. Very honored. This is awesome. Okay, well, see you guys soon. Bye. <laughs> I don't like that.